Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm Charles Hain. I'm John Fusco. And it's August 31st, 2017. On this week's show, an actor breaking Hollywood's mold, the changing times for Fox Searchlight and what it means for indie filmmakers, the best anamorphic lens test ever, a goodbye to horror great Toby Hooper, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Welcome to this week's show from downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School. Emily is somewhere with fjords uh, this week. Can I just ask, how how is she always in Norway? <laughs> When she's gone, how? Why? Why is it always Norway? She's attracted to the north. Uh, Does she have a secret Norwegian family? I don't know. She and... wants an unsecret Norwegian lover. I think Ooh. she was supposed to go to Morocco. That's the thing that surprised yeah, me the most. I thought that she was. <laughs> she requested time off to go to Morocco, and then I saw this picture of a freaking fjord on Instagram, and was like, "Wait a minute!" And she's like, "Oh yeah, we switched to Norway." Back to Norway. Mm. Anyway, we miss you, Emily, and. Uh, so I'm super glad that Charles is joining us for the whole show this week, especially because you can probably maybe tell John and I are both a little bit under the weather. So apologies for some sniffles and stuffy noses. Yeah, somehow it's already fall here. It's not even August it's isn't cold. over and it's already cold. Yeah, it's cold season and it's chilly. Yeah. So it's it's as I said, it's August 31st. I cannot believe summer is over and, you know, we can actually feel it in the air here. It's it's. It happens fast. But we're not going to let that stop us from bringing you the best in independent film news, starting with Mr. Fusco. Sure. So the first piece of news we have surrounds yet another Hollywood whitewashing controversy. Last week, it was announced that actor and Deadpool baddie Ed Skrine was cast as Major Ben Diamio in the new Hellboy reboot, Rise of the Blood Queen. In the comic books, as one would assume by the foreign last name, Major Ben Diamio is actually Japanese-American. The big news here, however, is not the casting, but the event that followed. Skrine took to Twitter to make a statement that, after the backlash, he would be stepping down from the role so that an actor of Asian descent could rightfully take his place. In the statement, he says that he accepted the part unaware that the character was of mixed Asian heritage. While this may or may not be entirely true, Skrine's choice to step down was certainly made from the truest of intentions. He goes on to say, It is clear that representing this character in a culturally accurate way holds significance for people and that to neglect this responsibility would continue a worrying tendency to obscure ethnic minority stories and voices in the arts. I feel it's important to honor and respect that. Therefore, I have decided to step down so the role can be cast appropriately. In doing so, Skrine breaks a cycle that has been going on for way too long in Hollywood for no good reason. Recent years have seen similar outcry over Scarlett Johansson playing a Japanese character, in 2017's Ghost in the Shell, Tilda Swinton playing the traditionally Tibetan ancient one in Doctor Strange, Emma Stone playing a Chinese-Hawaiian character in the 2015 film Aloha, and Jake Gyllenhaal playing the lead in 2010's Prince of Persia, The Sands of Time. That one's particularly embarrassing, by the way. Yeah, a little weird. Vox put the whole cycle best when they wrote, quote, an oft-cited justification for such whitewashing is that those roles go to big-name white actors, who in turn attract bigger audiences to see the movie. 
Though considering Ghost in the Shell's dismal box office haul, that seems more and more like a false argument, and it was likely not a factor in Scrine's casting, as Scrine is not really a box office draw on his own at this point. We don't even know how to say his name. Nope, and, you know, in doing my research for him, I knew he was in Deadpool, but he's actually in Game of Thrones, too. And he's that, yeah, he's, but in Game of Thrones, he's the guy with the long hair and the beard that's, like, in love with Danny for a while. I mean, there's, like, four. Oh, he's, like, that hot guy? Yeah, I think so. He's the, uh, oh. he has a knife and he kills people. This and that guy was the bad guy in Deadpool? Yeah, same guy. Oh. Virtually unrecognizable. I'm liking him more and more. Yeah, and he was also uh, a, an MC before his uh, acting days. He was a rapper. He's British. So you're actually almost making him a star now by explaining to us who he is. Yes. But before this podcast, I don't think he counts as like a box office. Star. Although now that I know he's like fine with cultural appro- appropriation in music, but not in movies, I'm a little less enamored, but still. Well, he actually is, he comes from mixed heritage himself. I didn't actually go into research to see what ethnic makeup he is, but he says later in his Twitter statement that part of the reason why he chose to step down was because of his own heritage. Hmm. So, anyways, while he's not really a box office draw on his own at this point, whitewashing perpetuates a cycle that makes it difficult for non-white actors to break through. They can't get hired if they're up against big-name talent, and they can't become big-name talent because they're not given the opportunity. Scrine acknowledged as much when he said, quote, "...representation of ethnic diversity is important, especially to me as I have a mixed heritage family." It is our responsibility to make moral decisions in difficult times and to give voice to inclusivity. It is my hope that one day these discussions will become less necessary and that we can help make equal representation in the arts a reality. I am sad to leave Hellboy, but if this decision brings us closer to that day, it is worth it. I hope it makes a difference. You know what? I hope this actually raises his profile and he gets some more good roles. I think it will. There was a lot of press about this, and I liked what uh, Angela Watercutter said about it in Wired. She was talking about the protests that arise when these white actors get cast in roles that were originally intended for people of other backgrounds. And she says, quote, what Scrine did swiftly and elegantly is prove that such protestation isn't necessary. If a studio makes a poor casting choice, it can be undone. If Hollywood wants to change, it can be done. It's also I totally believe him when he says he didn't know. Like. The name isn't particularly anything. I'm sure he didn't read the source material. I'm sure the script doesn't go into detail. Like, responding to the public outcry is totally like fair game. Yeah, I think that there was another strong point that was brought up in this article that I read, which was um, this also sort of brings to light that this is less of an actor's choice that this whitewashing is occurring, and it's more the producer's responsibility to ensure that this doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, But, you know... Scrine did a great thing in setting a sort of model for actors that are dealing with whitewashing to follow. We'll see if any of them do. Well, I was going to say, do we know who is going to take nope. the part? Nope, hasn't been, hasn't been recast yet. So, so Jalen Hall will be getting a yes. call soon. Let's hope that these producers don't drop the ball. And now for Indie Film Weekly's Matthias segment, The Bottom Line. I'm Liz Nord, and this is The Bottom Line. I do feel weird doing Emily's segment, but hey, let's give it a whirl. So this week we're focusing on one specific company, Fox Searchlight. And I want to thank Ann Thompson over at IndieWire for writing up such a thorough breakdown of the company's current situation. Now, if you don't know, Searchlight is Fox's specialty division. 
and it's responsible for distribution of some of the biggest indie hits in the past 20 years. Its top three performers were Juno at 143 million, Slumdog Millionaire at 141 million, and Black Swan at 107 million. It used to be that if you made an indie, this would easily be your top distribution choice. But as we've discussed on the show almost every week, the times they are a changing and quickly, and it's important for us as filmmakers to understand something about the landscape. So look at this summer. We talked a couple weeks ago about the release of Patty Cakes, or as we called it, Patty Kaching, because that last S is a dollar sign, but turns out it's kind of a misnomer. Searchlight picked up the film at Sundance for 9.5 million bucks after an intense bidding war, but it only made 68,000 in its opening weekend. In her article, Thompson breaks down the reasons why this shift is happening, and it's very detailed, but I'll paint the broad strokes here. So the first thing she points out, which is going to be obvious to us all, is Netflix and Amazon. Remember that Patty Kaching bidding war? It was with the streamers. Right now, these companies are driving up prices and forcing distributors to make more North American pre-buys. Amazon Studios acquired the big sick at Sundance this year for $12 million, and it's the specialty hit of the year so far, about to pass $40 million in the U.S. Netflix paid the highest for a Sundance film this year. Uh, they bought D. Reese's Mudbound. More competition is good for filmmakers for now, but this bubble is sure to burst, and I wonder where that'll leave us in the long run. Now, the second big reason is younger, hipper distributors. It's not just streaming services giving Searchlight a literal run for its money, it's companies like A24 and Neon. The same weekend that Patty Cakes opened earlier this month, it faced competition from Neon's Ingrid Goes West with Aubrey Plaza and Elizabeth Olsen and A24's Good Time with my boy Robert Pattinson. Each of them took in more than twice what Patty Cakes did during opening weekend in New York and L.A., though they did fall off somewhat as they went wider. The thing is that these companies have more, well, independence and therefore more flexibility than studio-affiliated companies like Searchlight, which makes them very attractive, even to parties that have worked with Searchlight before. Thompson points out that Plan B, which produced Searchlight's 12 Years a Slave, went with A24 for a distribution partner for Moonlight, which of course went on to win the Oscar for Best Picture. So it's a little bit of an ouch. Thompson also points to a lack of confidence after what she calls the scorched earth of Searchlight's Birth of a Nation acquisition last year, and a much more crowded field competing for audience attention as reasons for Searchlight's current status. All that being said, Searchlight has a very promising upcoming lineup with new Guillermo del Toro and Wes Anderson titles, among several others. So the takeaway for filmmakers is to keep paying attention to this stuff and know that when you get to the point of having a film for sale, there are a lot of good options. This can seem overwhelming, but it's ultimately a good thing. You have choices, and choices are power. And that's the bottom line. And our final piece of news today is another obituary, unfortunately. We lost George Romero earlier this summer, and now we've lost another horror great, director Toby Hooper, who was, of course, famous for homing the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Salem's Lot, and Poltergeist. He passed away Saturday in Los Angeles of natural causes. Almost a half a century later, his revolutionary chainsaw masterpiece is still changing the genre. I mean, you can't talk about slashers, low-budget filmmaking, or even found footage film without first talking about his 1974 indie masterpiece, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. He was one of the first to do away with cheeseball conventions of B-movie horror or sort of classic universal monster picks and make a film in the genre that felt visceral and real. 
Other horror filmmakers certainly took note. As our writer V. Renee noted in the obituary she wrote for Hooper, Texas Chainsaw Massacre was a slasher before slashers even existed. Without his work, we may never have seen Freddy, Jason, or even Michael Myers. So rest in peace, Toby, and thank you for the countless nightmares you inspired throughout your career. I just saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre for the first time last year, and I'd been meaning to no watch way. it for a while. Yeah, because it was one of the ones that I hear, her always heard was like truly terrifying, even to this day, just because of like, I don't know, the feeling of it. There's just this, this heat that like, I don't know, it protrudes through the screen. I saw it in theaters. I saw it at this wow. little boutique uh, movie theater called Syndicated in Bushwick. And I saw it with Emily, actually, around Halloween. And, yeah, it's still really scary. And I don't get scared. It's just un- it makes you uncomfortable. You know, it's like it wasn't about jump scare- scares or anything. It was just this deep feeling that he, like, entrenched in your body while you're watching it. And it's it's terrifying. So, it's sad to see him go, um, but his legacy is everywhere. So, yeah, he's one of those filmmakers that will live on. Like, even if people don't know his name, they will certainly see his influence in so many, as you pointed out, so many films to come. Totally. You know, we we talk about this other filmmaker all the time, but like Kubrick was obsessed with Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It was like one of his favorite movies of the seventies. Like, I didn't know that. Yeah, Toby Hooper was like beloved, not just like by fans of the horror genre, but also like. Like arty sci-fi artists were also like. Texas but that, also, that kind of makes sense too, because I feel like Kubrick's whole thing is making audiences uncomfortable. Yeah, gear news. Gear news. Gear. Always awkward transitioning from an obituary to anything else. To anything else, and we say this every time. Unfortunately, it's happened a lot this year and last year in the in the year and a half of the No Film School podcast. But here's our awkward transition, Charles. Wait, how about this? And new gear will never die. Ooh, that's a good one. I was going to say, avoid thinking about the cold embrace of death with the cold embrace of technology. Ooh, oh, that's, that's really better. good. Yeah, that's I like good. it. Um, we can just we can just change the segment name to the cold embrace of technology. <laughs> I yeah. So first up in the cold embrace of technology this week uh, is the most thorough anamorphic lens test ever done. So share grid. The, like, Airbnb for camera rentals. Although I can't wait until we start saying, like, this new thing is the share grid for something else. But also we on our site called KitSplit the Airbnb for camera rentals. So Well, KitSplit and ShareGrid would both like to be the Airbnb of camera rentals. And it makes me really happy that, like, two people are fighting with such equal footing. Like, it's not like Uber and Lyft where Uber is worth billions and billions more. Like, ShareGrid and KitSplit seem to really be going toe-to-toe, which I, like, I'm glad to see healthy competition in the market. Yeah, and last week I talked about the Airbnb of car rental services, Tura. So I think that that's a pretty <laughs> Does Tura new thing. work? Every time I try it, I, they're always well, like, because we live in here. New York City. New York, it's illegal, so you'd have to go to Jersey to do it, but it does work um, in Jersey. You just have to take a train to get there. You have to listen to last week's episode. All right, I will do so. Um, Anyways, regardless. ShareGrid did these amazing spherical lens tests last year that we covered, and this year they're back with an amazingly thorough anamorphic comparison. So the first thing, nothing's ever going to beat doing your own tests, right? There's things you're going to know because you were there that when you see it in the footage, you're going to learn from. However, no one ever does lens tests this thorough themselves. They tested so many different sets of vintage anamorphic lenses and modern anamorphic lenses that you would never go to the trouble of getting hands on yourself, and they did it 
with a really high level of production and a high level of consistency test to test and all heap of behind the scenes information so you could know exactly what they were doing every step of the way. So if there is a lens test out there to learn from, this one is definitely it. Uh, if you have an upcoming CinemaScope production or if in general you just want to know more about anamorphic lenses, this is definitely the test to look at. Um, hands down, my favorite uh, inclusion in this round was vintage Panavision Auto Panatars. So most of us think of Panavision as being a rental-only company. But before they went rental-only in the 70s, they used to sell lenses to people. And they sold these Panatars in the 60s. I'm pretty sure in a BNC mount. These are lenses from that era. And they're like, there's very little Panavision equipment you can actually buy. There's an empty Panavision Gold uh, camera case that you could that was sold by Universal Studios that was used in the Terminator 2 ride. So someone owns that. And a diver got the Panavision that fell off the Titanic submarine. So those are the only two other, like, home-purchased Panavision stuff. What? Yeah, everything else is owned by Panavision. So it was really cool they had that there. That was awesome. They also had the brand-new cost-effective Atlas Anamorphics that we covered out of NAB. And they hold up pretty well in their tests, consider, especially considering that they're up against much pricier competition. And those Atlas glass are going to be like 6000 a piece, which, believe it or not, is a very good deal for anamorphics. Next up, LEDs basically own everything now. The vast majority of shoots are LED-driven these days or will be soon. But we're finally getting to the point where there's some like really affordable, powerful LEDs hitting the streets. UK company Blind Spot has started shipping their tile, which they financed earlier through Kickstarter, but now they're available to the general public, up on B&H, that kind of thing. And they have a 20% launch price, which ends today, August 31st, the last day of August. So check out the article today to see what we thought. We were lucky enough to get to play with one and their brand new softbox, and it's pretty impressive kit for a very good price. There's a lot of like really nice small design details that make you aware that it was well thought out. A soft box for a soft light might seem a bit odd um, since it's one of those little flat panel LED lights, but the key with light softness is size. And while the tile is like a soft box design, it's pretty small, and adding that soft box to it with a really nice integrated reflector is going to make the light a little bit larger, more like the size of someone's face. So if you're using it for portrait lighting, it'll take a little bit of the edge off, be a little more flattering. Last up in the cold embrace of technology news, Ariflex has introduced their own line of full-spectrum ND filters. So, like many Ari-branded products, this is actually a collaboration. The filters are shot optical glass from the shot company, not just shot glass, which is its whole another thing. But there are a few features that make them a true Ari product. There's C-shaped curved edges that lower side flares, truly parallel sides, and uh, an anti-reflective optical coatings to preserve contrast and prepare for HDR. So these are really great filters to look at. This is an extension of the work Ari did when they were integrating an interior ND filter for their Amira lens cameras, but now you can put them in front of your lens, not just behind the lens. As digital sensors get faster and faster, ND filters are becoming increasingly vital to any cinematographer's toolkit, and these are really great in that they are full spectrum. They're going to cut all of the light equally, which is going to give you a much better color reproduction than some other lower-cost ND filters where there might be a color cast, especially as you start stacking them up. Thanks, Charles. So we also have an Ask No Film School question for you. 
Isaac Elliott wrote to ask, I'm about to start editing on a 60-minute corporate documentary project, and to speed up the process, I want to be able to work on separate sections of the edit with another editor who will be working in the same room on a separate computer. He wants to know how would we be able to go about this and have access to the same media pool. Is it possible? It is totally possible, but it's not quite as easy as we want it to be. So, for a long time, Avid was the company you went to if you wanted a multi-user workflow, which is why Avid used to dominate in television and studios. You want two editors, you want two editors and an assistant, anything like that, it was Avid. But both Resolve and Premiere have put a ton of work lately into catching up, and you can absolutely make this work with Premiere. Although I do think you should consider looking at Resolve. Okay, so we're going to break it into two halves. The first big hurdle is hardware, because you want two editors pulling from the same media pool. And in the dream scenario, you just get one of those hard drives that has like two Firewire or Thunderbolt ports in the back, and you plug one in it into each computer, but that doesn't work. And I know because I really want it to work that it drives me nuts that it doesn't. What you need is you need a media server that's specifically designed and built so that media sits on a hard drive and it's served to both computers. Avid is one of the manufacturers of like really premier servers, but their servers also work with Premiere. So you might want to look at Avid servers. If you go to the Avid website, they will brag about how good they are serving media to multiple Premiere workstations. They also work with Final Cut and Lightworks and all those things. So that's one to consider. You should also look at something like EditShare or for a more cost-effective option, something from QNAP. Now, if you really want to save money, what a lot of people do, and what I actually usually do if I don't have access to a server, is just buy multiple hard drives, name them the same, set up the file structures the same, and then the two computers aren't pulling from the same media pool, but they're pulling from identical media pools. So as you move the project file back and forth, it's easy to relink. Charles, what about the cloud? Is that not a viable option yet? Well, so we'll get to cloud when it talks to project files, but putting media on the cloud in North America, the internet is just not fast enough yet for you to have your shared network storage on the cloud. American internet mostly sucks. Mm. And so I have never, and I keep testing it because for one of my clients, it would be a really helpful workflow. I have never found a successful cloud solution for editing shared media that's stored on the network that works. Now, if you happen to be super lucky and you have like gigabit up and down because you live in Sweden, it's something to consider. But it's not a workflow that's super common because the pipe is not really big enough for getting media files over. Got it. Now, that said, it is fast enough for project files. So, moving out of hardware, where depending upon your budget, you're probably going to just end up buying two hard drives and duping them so they're identical, we're going to move into software. And how do you work with two Premiere Pro editors working at the same time? Adobe's system for that is over the cloud. It's team projects with Creative Cloud, and it's a tool set that's designed to put your project file on the cloud so you can both be working on it. And because a project file doesn't require the media to go up and down... It's just pointer data going up and down. It actually seems to work somewhat well. Haven't tested it personally, have heard good things from the people who are doing it. It will be funny because the two of you are sitting in the same room and sharing your media over the internet. Um, but apparently that really works. Now, you also might want to consider Avid, who has some cost-effective options for not doing in the cloud. 
I would also really high, highly encourage you to look at DaVinci Resolve. It's $300 per license, so it would only be $600 in software for the both of you. And may I, with Resolve 14, which was released in April, it's still in beta, but beta 8, the current version, is very stable. The sharing tools are really powerful. So you would put the database on your media server, and then two of you could be logged into the same project at the same time. Whatever timeline you're in is locked. The other person has a little icon saying, locked, you can't work on it. You get a little chat window so you can send each other messages from within Resolve like, hey, how's Act 4 looking? Or like, ah, what do you think of the music in Act 5? It's a really well-designed system that's built specifically for what you want to do. Now, Resolve system is great for this. Avid system is great for this. I'm really sure that Premiere will have a non-cloud solution for this soon. I don't know when your project starts. You should definitely look at Resolve Beta 8. You should also uh, investigate uh, the cloud team project solution from Premiere. Um, and no matter what, you're going to have to probably look at a shared media server. Um, good luck with your project. Can't wait to hear how it goes. Thanks for the question, Isaac. And moving on to some independent movies that you'll be able to catch this week. Earlier this week, Ingrid Youngerman's debut feature, Women Who Kill, arrived on VOD like iTunes, Amazon, and Vudu. Youngerman made her name with successful web series, including The Slope and F to Seventh. I call this film probably the world's first lesbian romantic comedy murder mystery. And it's about a love triangle between two ex-girlfriends who podcast about female serial killers and a mysterious third named Simone who may or may not be a serial killer herself. One of the best parts of the movie is that it stars Sheila Vand as Simone, and she's an actor I really have my eye on these days. She starred in A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, and I interviewed her this year at Tribeca when she appeared in Aardvark. I think she's one of the most interesting in the business right now. The film has a subtle but interesting visual style, and when I spoke with Youngerman back at Tribeca 2016, where the film won an award for Best Screenplay, she said that she had almost written it as two different movies for the two characters that her character, by the way she plays in the film herself, is torn between. So Jean was written as Day, and Simone was written as Night. Youngerman said, quote, We went very bright, very much natural light in Jean's world, like white walls and primary colors. In Simone's world, it's much more sensual. It's mostly night, more noiry, and it got more into the mystery feel. It was fun to play with those two worlds. And it's fun to watch, so check it out on VOD. And coming to Amazon Prime Instant on September 1st is Boy. Taika Waititi has directed some of the funniest and most heartfelt comedies of the decade. His latest feature, The Hunt for the Wilder People, was one of the standouts of last year, while both his debut, Eagle vs. Shark, and the great What We Do in the Shadows are just as, if not even more, hilarious. His sophomore feature, the aforementioned Boy, is set on the east coast of New Zealand in 1984. It follows Boy, an 11-year-old child and devout Michael Jackson fan, who gets a chance to know his absentee criminal father, who has returned to find a bag of money he buried years ago. The up-and-coming James Rolston plays Boy, while YTD plays his good-for-very-little father. YTD's next film will be the blockbuster Thor Ragnarok, which we are all greatly looking forward to this fall. Coming to Netflix are uh, two classics of the 90s and 2000s indie cinema boom. Netflix often is a little thin on classic or a little, like, criterion-feeling movies, but two of them are coming. So on September 1st, there will be Pulp Fiction, 
the like deeply beloved Tarantino opus returns on uh, to Netflix this Friday. If you haven't seen it, it follows two mob hitmen, a boxer, a gangster's wife, and a pair of diner bandits whose stories intertwine in four tales of violence and redemption. Uh, if you have seen it, go ahead and read a wealth of articles we've written about it on No Film School over the years. Arriving the same day is Darren Aronofsky's Requiem for a Dream, which is another favorite here on No Film School. And you can check out a lot of articles on that one as well. And coming to HBO on September 2nd is A Monster Calls. Last December, we released an interview podcast with the director J.A. Bayona, screenwriter Patrick Ness, and child actor Louis McDougall, in which we discussed this really beautiful, heartbreaking film. The film is about a boy who seeks the help of a tree monster to cope with his mom's terminal illness. Also starring are Felicity Jones and Sigourney Weaver. It's a great film, so watch it and then check out the podcast A Monster Calls, how to direct young actors to brilliant performances to figure out more about how it was made. And coming to theaters on Friday, September 1st, not a lot of new movies for coming out, but one that I thought I'd signal out is Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which is undergoing a 40th anniversary release. This is Steven Spielberg's first venture into the realm of science fiction, and as I said, it's headed back to theaters with a 4K restoration just in time for its 40th birthday. The film won an Oscar for Best Cinematography and a special award for Best Sound Effects Editing, but somehow it lost in the visual effects category. Do you know to who? Well, actually, it makes more sense when you consider the fact that the single other film that was nominated for these awards was Star Wars Episode IV A New Hope, which pretty much ended up winning every other design category as well. That doesn't take away from what a remarkable achievement Close Encounters was at the time, and really still is today. The film stars Richard Dreyfuss as a line worker who, after an encounter with UFOs, feels undeniably drawn to an isolated area in the wilderness where something spectacular is about to happen. Something spectacular truly does happen, and it would be a real treat to see it on the big screen and in 4K. If you would rather wait to watch this 4K restoration in the comfort of your own home, you'll be able to purchase the Blu-ray a little over two weeks later on, on September 19th. But I think you should go see it in theaters, and I might go see it in theaters too, because it's one of my favorite sci-fi movies. Yeah, man. I don't usually go to the restored films um, because I see so many movies, but this one seems worth, worth seeing. All right, on to grant deadlines. So the first grant deadline to pay attention to is the Alfred P. Sloan Commissioning Grant and Fellowship, which is due September 7th, 2017. So this grant is to support the development of screenplays with science or technology themes. Sundance Institute and the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation provide opportunities for both emerging and established filmmakers through granting and fellowships. It was established in 2005, and the Alfred P. Sloan Commissioning Grant is an annual cash award for a science and technology-related project that is at an early stage, such as full treatment or an early screenplay draft. Additionally, one fellowship is awarded annually to an emerging screenwriter to support the ongoing development of a narrative feature-length screenplay with science or technology themes. Projects must incorporate real science and or technology themes and characters. Stories that are sci-fi, speculative, or futuristic in Nature are not eligible. Projects must be a feature-length narrative. This isn't for docs. It must be live action, no animation. And it must be in English. And the screenwriter must reside in the USA. And tonight, if you're feeling up to a challenge, you can submit your short film to the Lexus Short Films competition. 
as I said, tonight is the deadline. There's no monetary component to this competition. Instead, you'll have the opportunity to partner with one of the most powerful studios on the planet. Four filmmakers will be selected to each write and direct a short film produced by the Weinstein Company. Each film will receive the full backing of the Weinstein Company, and the package includes promotional theatrical screenings, a global film festival campaign, and promotional support for its ultimate release. Filmmakers will also receive a first-look commitment courtesy of the Weinstein Company, as well as an IMDb Pro account subscription for one year and a digital download of Final Draft screenwriting software. Entry is free, and you can submit any short you've completed in the past as an entry into the competition. There is one rather large caveat, however. You must have written and directed at least one short film that has been accepted to a film festival or must currently be a film student enrolled in film school to be able to apply, which is a little bit lame. Still, if you have that, you know, relatively minor track record, it's a cool contest to enter. We've also got some festival deadlines for you this week. Um, Also tonight is the deadline for the Cleveland International Film Festival. It's the early bird deadline, so if you can't make it, you've still got a little time. This festival, run by the Cleveland Film Society, has been going on for 41 years, and it's recognized as one of the top 50 leading film festivals in the world by IndieWire, as well as the USA Today runner-up for best film festival in the country, which I don't know how USA Today makes its... Uh, recommendations there, but that's interesting. Um, This year, the festival is accepting web series and new media for free, so there's no entry fee. There's a lot of great cash prizes here, including ones up to 15 grand, 10 grand. And we recommend that you actually check out Cleveland International Film Festival's website that we will link to in the podcast post because there's a lot of prizes and categories that are extensive and cover a lot of ground. And on September 1st, You can apply to the Bermuda International Film Festival. This is the early bird deadline. It takes place in Bermuda from March 16th to the 21st, 2018. Yeah, who wouldn't want to go to Bermuda? You keep talking. I'm just doing a soundtrack. No, that's okay. I'll wait until you're done. (laughs) The festival has a coveted grand jury prize, which is bestowed upon the festival's best narrative short film, which also qualifies its winner for consideration by the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences for the short film live-action Oscar. Since becoming a qualifying festival in 2004, two of their short award winners have gone on to win, Wasp in 2005 and Toyland in 2009. In addition, that winning short will also take home $1,000 cash. All right, finally, the San Luis Obispo International Film Festival on September 5th. This is the early bird deadline. Bro. Bro? Anyway, it takes place March 13th to the 18th in San Luis Obispo, California. Last year marked the third time it was named to Movie Maker Magazine's list of the top 50 festivals worth the entry fee. There are $1,000 cash prizes for the best narrative feature and best documentary feature, and $500 cash prizes for the best narrative short, best documentary short, and best student film of any length. So get that money. And we'll wrap up with everyone's favorite segment, Weekly Words of Wisdom. Our writer Scout Tafoya covered Philly's Black Star Film Festival, which he said was the highlight of his movie-going year. And this year, Ava DuVernay gave a really inspiring address that he wrote up on NoFilmSchool.com. I don't know if you know this, but DuVernay didn't even pick up a camera until she was 32. And before that, she'd worked in film PR. So how did she train as a filmmaker? No Film School! She credits post-screening Q&As, screenwriting books, listening to directors talk about their work on press junkets, and good old-fashioned DVD commentaries. DuVernay said, quote, 
I'm telling you, it's the cheapest film school you can do. Imagine this, your favorite movie. The director is going to sit down with you one-on-one and walk you through their movie, what they did and what they were thinking about, how that shot came to be. I mean, it's gold for people who want to learn what they're doing. I watched so many director's commentaries. So it was nice to have an affirmation of what we always say here on No Film School. Get out there to as many festivals and events as possible to learn and take advantage of all the director interviews and behind-the-scenes videos we have on nofilmschool.com. And my weekly words of wisdom, uh, I wrote up a really interesting article this week about how to write a great plot twist and actually ended up confirming a suspicion that I've had for a long time. And that suspicion is that spoilers really don't end up making you like the film any less. In fact, a UCSD study actually proved that they can increase your enjoyment of the film because you are more engaged in finding clues that would have made the twist ending surprising. To write a good twist, however, you have to keep a couple things in mind. One of the most important principles is that the final payoff always matches the established logic at the beginning of each story. The audience needs to be provided some information in the beginning so that by the time the payoff comes, it's satisfying because they'll have been playing a game of trying to guess the twist during the entire time in between. Hitchcock, who I've been watching kind of obsessively the past week, five movies in seven days to deal with my own anxieties about making my first short, really probably not the best advice to go and watch uh, uh, a Hitchcock movie if you're trying to deal with anxiety because he is a true master, the true master of suspense, but for whatever reason, it's working for me. Anyways, he said, in order to get suspense, you provide the audience with a certain amount of information and leave the rest of it to their own imagination. Plus, it just seems like lazy writing when a twist does indeed come from completely out of nowhere. Sure, there's some shock value, but it is not earned, and as such, the feeling will only be fleeting. In the opinion of the video essayist who I wrote the uh, piece about, he said, The best plot twist is the one that can create the biggest surprise without ruining the established logic. So to create a good plot twist, establish your story, give the audience some hints as to what could happen, and then come up with a story point that follows the rules of your narrative, but is still completely unexpected. Or, to get stunningly academic, consider misdirection that adheres to your film's verisimilitude. And as I told John when I edited this article, I love when he uses the word verisimilitude. I like it too. So in the what's going on right this minute section, (laughs) which I just named very cleverly, um, otherwise known as events, the 74th annual Venice Film Festival kicked off last night and it goes on until September 9th. And I'm super envious of everyone who's there. It takes place on an island in one of the most beautiful cities in the world and is host to world-class films and events, including Golden Lion Awards for Lifetime Achievement, which this year are being presented to Jane Fonda and Robert Redford. USA. USA. The pair is co-starring in a film that's screening out of competition at the festival, and Redford also produced the film, which is called Our Souls at Night. But the interesting note about it, especially after all the controversy over streaming service movies playing at Cannes, is that it's a Netflix original film. So we will bring you more news from the Venice Film Festival as it progresses. But this also reminds me that I wanted to send out a shout out to a listener in the same region. Um, Franco Rizzo from Malta is one of our listeners. And he is someone who has written us really nice things about the show and how much he enjoys it. And he mentioned to me recently in an Instagram exchange that he's like a little bit creatively stuck. And you know what? We all get there. So I just wanted to send you a little shout out and say, 
go out, shoot some stuff, shake yourself out of it, and we are on your team. And next week's podcast on Monday, it's going to be an interview podcast uh, with me and a friend of mine who has some experience in production, and his name is Will Thompson. He just completed his first feature. Uh, And we're going to be talking about sort of the challenges of pre-production and what you can do to avoid some of the mistakes that I've made in (laughs) trying to make my own short film. Um, It's going to be really practical advice, so definitely take a listen. And I might as well just plug my own thing again here. Uh, Please consider backing my project on Kickstarter uh, or just watch the video and see what I look like if you like my voice. It's called The Guy. Search for it and watch it. The Guy. I'm looking forward to that episode. It's cool that it's going to be kind of just like a conversation, working through some of the challenges that you've had and that we all have or will face. So that's going to be great. Yeah, we'll probably just pop open one of those Bud Lights that are free in the hallway right now, nice and warm, and sit down in this podcast booth and hash it out. Yeah, we've talked about our weird building before, and today in weird building news, there are multiple free cases of beer sitting right outside our elevator. So, yeah, I'm surprised we're not actually drunk in this episode, but Bud it sounds Light, like you will be for uh, Budweiser, Mondays. Keystone, all the classics. Again, USA, USA. So, in the meantime, uh, please stay in touch. Rate us on iTunes. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. The subscriptions really go a long way and uh, really matter to us. So, um, Oh, it's also worth mentioning that we ha- have officially hit over a million plays as of last week. And this month will be the first month that we have hit 100,000 listens uh, in the month. So Woo! those are milestones. And what, what? thank you guys for I'm going to pop open a free Budweiser right now. Yep. But seriously, thank you guys so much. Visit us for lots of information about the craft of filmmaking at nofilmschool.com. Shout us out. I'm at LizFilm on Twitter. I'm at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Jim, John, Jim. Okay, that's, that was enough. Charles <laughs> is at Charles Hain. And we're all at No Film School. See you next week. 